Hey, Sobertown. Welcome to SobertownPodcast.com. This is where you will find the wonderful recovery podcast episodes and tons of recovery-related resources like Todd's blog. Some of his topics include how to manage cravings. We also have other topics like Rewired, how to get to Zooms, and so much more to support the Silver Warrior in you. My name is Viv, but some of you know me as Silver I Thrive on the IAS app, also known as I Am Sober. It's in your app store and you can use it at the daily counter of your sober free days. Check out the community too. This is where we all met so we can share our experiences with you too. Sobertown gives you the resources. Come and visit and we'd like to see more of you. In addition, I'm a certified recovery addictions coach as well as a life coach. So if you have any questions or you would like to have a one-on-one free coaching, my email is at viv at soberithrive.org. Send me an email and I'll be more than happy to answer any of your questions or book a first appointment with me. Good morning, Ray. Good morning, Raul. I have a couple of special guests from the I Am Sober app, and we are really good friends, or we've become really good friends through the I Am Sober app, and that's where we all met. We come from different ethnicities, and we're here to tell our story as people of color and our experiences in getting sober. So this show is done with the process in mind to bring awareness to all the different ethnicities of color, some biases that we may have in order to get sober and may think that sobriety is not possible within our culture, within our homes and within our families. So this is to give hope, this is to give awareness, and it is our intention with love that this, our stories will bring hope to you as well. I would like to introduce both of our guests, Ray and Raulito. How are you ladies and gentlemen today, this morning? So I'm excited to do this. I'm feeling pretty, pretty good and a little nervous, not going to lie, but we'll see how it goes. Perfectly normal. You know, if we're not nervous, it means that we're not doing anything new. So nervous and excited is the same thing. So we're excited to be able to bring this message. Ray, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm waking up. I'll get it together. I promise. (laughs) You don't worry. We all got it. We all got it together. We all got it together. So the way that I'd like to preface this is I wanted to get into each one of our stories of how we became sober. Because all three of us became sober in different ways. And in listening to the program, my hope is the listener will be able to identify themselves with each and every one of us, maybe not with me, maybe not with Raulito, maybe not with Ray, but maybe within each and every one of us, there are parts of you that you will be able to see in yourself. So sobriety is life. and. We just want to share the gospel of sobriety. So, Raulito, tell us and take us back to the earlier days in active addiction and what brought you, what happened? Take us through that. So, 
if we're talking about the in, the incident that kind of started this whole ball rolling with my sobriety, I was, it was a Thursday and I'm not, it was sometime in, in November, it was a Thursday and I was sitting and I was waiting in, in my office, waiting to be interviewed by our human resource departments for allegations that I've been drinking. And I was a little nervous. A coworker smelled some alcohol in my breath and she was new and she was really struggling to acclimate to the job. And I come, I smell like alcohol, obviously in the morning. And she was uh, thinking that I was drinking on the job and it was making her uh, situation a little difficult. So I was really nervous that I was going to be uh, interviewed and it's her, it's before lunch, before 11. And I'm sitting there waiting for this process. And while I'm waiting, I got a phone call from my son. And, you know, my son and I have been living together. He's now 27. This was about almost three years ago. But he calls me and I can feel it. I can sense his voice. He's like, Dad, 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 I effed up. I effed up. And I'm thinking, what's wrong, right? Because I already, I'm a, he's a drinker too. And I just like the worst phone call ever, right? He goes, Dad, I messed up. I messed up. I crashed my motorcycle and I'm about to be arrested. And my heart just sank. Like here I am sitting. I can't get away from this meeting because it's like she, the human resource person flew from Los Angeles and that was, was a big deal, right? And my heart just sank. My boss just saw me and like he saw this glazed overlook. So what was that? What was that? What's wrong? Is everything okay? And I kind of had to walk outside and to the warehouse. And, and, and I told him what happened. He goes, well, you know, you can't do anything right now, right? And uh, he got rushed to the hospital. He almost killed himself. And I'm sitting there just, I couldn't leave that space. And I was in my head so deep. And I had to wait it out. Eventually, I did get into the interview. But the first thing that I that I did, I was like, it was Thursday and I had already started making plans. Hey, I'm not going to be able to make it tomorrow because I'm already stressed out. And my boss, yeah, no problem. And I already knew I was preparing or clearing the landscape to be able to drink because this is traumatic, right? And I go pick up my son from the hospital. He ended up busting his left arm, elbow pretty good. He's got a synthetic piece in his elbow. But I go pick him up and... Without even saying it, because we, we drank and did drugs in the same households. We weren't like together, but we were in the same house getting loaded all the time. Not a proud moment of fatherhood, but I pick him up and I give him a hug. I'm glad he's okay. And our first stop, without even saying anything, I knew, all right, first stop is a local weed store. Second stop was dropping off the prescription because now there's some pain meds involved. Third stop was the alcohol store. And it was going to be now a three-day weekend, right? And loaded up with that and then come back and got the meds. And, you know, looking back at it, I was like, wow, okay, we can get started after this, right? We can get started after this weekend. And there was always like some other time to get started on. And and it was just crazy to, to look back and think that that's, that was our first stop after such a traumatic experience. And no, we learned our lesson then, but that's what got it all started. And at that particular point, my son had already been getting in trouble. He had a domestic violence deferred. 
And he had another altercation where he was running into situations where he was fighting with other people in public. He got that deferred. But this DUI incident got everything to come kind of crashing in on him. And he was running out of spaces to run, right? Right. And I made a, a simple statement like, son, you're a really good person. You're a really good kid. When you're not drinking, you're just the sweetest person in the world, right? And all you have to do is stop drinking and you can get past this. Because now he's going to have the DUI, the domestic violence, and this fighting in public or what have you. And I said, all you have to do is stop drinking. He said, dad, I agree. I agree with you. Why don't you help me? And, and that was the moment that I decided to take the flyer. And that's, that was the birth of what started, but it didn't really start. He was going to go to court in, in the first week of January. And we're like, all right, we'll transition into this. And he didn't want to stop because he could still get away with it. But uh, he wanted to stop a week prior to the court date. So if there was any kind of potential, uh, you know, random UAs, he was going to be prepared to, to be, you know, having a clean test, if you will. 12, 2018 is when uh, we decided to hang it up. And it was like New Year's, you know, coming up. And I was just so exhausted. You know what? I need this time to be able to just recuperate. It was going to be... It was going to be hell to me because, you know, I was a daily drinker. I woke up in the morning and that's the first thing that I wanted to do was drink. But I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of what got the balls ball rolling for me. It is. Was there anything prior to that? Like I'm looking at, I'm just looking in my mind's eye at that pivotal moment where you're sitting there because with HR, and then all of a sudden, the call that you get for your son. So I'm looking at that stage where there's two parallel lives between you and your son running at the same time, like you said. And kind of what catches my eye, just we're being very vulnerable here. And the reason that we're being vulnerable on this podcast is because we want to bring awareness to our communities, to different people that. In addiction, it's a different person. It's no longer you. It's no longer the person in active addiction rather than the sober you. So the way that we're sharing this is in order to be able to enlighten everyone that shame and guilt has no room in sobriety. We're here and we're telling our stories. So the reason I wanted to preface that is because in my, and I'm going to go to you, Ray, in a second. In my community, Ray and I had talked that it is very normal for us to have a quinceañera and we drink with our kids or our parents drink with us, you know, our aunts and uncles. And so I think it, it was very, I grew up with that preconceived idea that it was normal so you don't really look at it and you don't think it's a problem because there isn't a problem this is how we grow up right yeah and for in my mexican culture upbringing it was really normal for to drink work hard play hard was the idea and he held a job he's going to work and i'm thinking i'd rather have him do that at home than be out 
because I knew he was going to do it. And all right, if you're going to do it, might as well do it at home where it's safe and nothing's going to happen. It wasn't like we were drinking buddies. It was just like, all right, he's going to do it. He's going to do what he's going to do. I'd rather have him do it at home. So where he's safe or I can at least monitor the situation. Not that I was any better at it, seeing that I was, I was in my own world getting over there. Yeah, it was absolutely a normal thing. Like, I'd rather have him do it here than out there because the idea of not drinking just was kind of a, yeah, I wasn't expecting him not to drink. So was it his request and what happened with that crash that kind of gave the light bulb moment to say that he was like, I need, I need help? Or did you ever at any point in time think that it wasn't benefiting you well it was a bunch of sequences so i had gotten a dui years back i lost my license and the state of washington is pretty hard on people with dui so my i went into acceptance as far as not having a license and i got the dui and then i was they call it nudge from the judge in the program <laughs> i had the nudge from the judge and I was going to IOP, intensive outpatient, and I was being exposed. Earlier, I was talking with a friend talking about prejudgments. I think that friend was Viv, talking <laughs> about prejudgments. And I had so many prejudgments. I was like, oh, there's not a problem with me. This is how I roll. I like to party. I like to do this. And being forced to go into something, I wasn't ready. I was not ready to hear the message. but. It was looking back, hindsight is twenty twenty. A lot of the stuff that I was exposed to in the program was landing deep in my conscience. It was kind of like clearing ground for me for when I finally was able to hear the message. But uh, I went in there. I would try to get sober. I would try to acclimate and share with people in the room, and it just wasn't. It wasn't heartfelt. And I didn't know it. I was trying really hard to try and see if I can get some traction. And I had so much pressure to try and do it, too, because at that particular point, I would still be able to save my marriage. And there's so many things, but just got to the point where I was completely defeated. So I got divorced. Uh, I was living. My son wanted to live with me. And and then that's when the progression took off. So there was a lot of there was a lot of missed opportunities for me to actually hear it. Here's the message that is. And I just I didn't. And I think that kept me in my addiction for such a long, long time because I kept looking back. I kept looking back and lost opportunities. Well, I didn't get it then. I didn't get it then. And what's the point? And then I would my addiction with cherry pick, like not everybody gets sobriety. It's only a small percentage of people. And my addiction are like, yeah, so why even bother? Let's just stick around. And what's the point of trying if I'm already going to be falling on my face? And even with my uh, counselor, he was saying, Raul, are you an alcoholic? No, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. And he goes, Raul, the worst thing that you could do is know that you're an alcoholic and then continue to drink. And I was like, wait, what did you say? <laughs> you mean I can, you know, for me in my mind was like, okay, if I say I'm an alcoholic, then that's really cementing the fact that I can't drink anymore. And when he said that, hey, I can call myself an alcoholic and continue to drink this, hey, yeah, I'm an alcoholic and that's the route I'm going to go. 
because I wasn't ready to stop. And I was just going to play the system. When I was in IOP, we were subjected to being random UAs. And I was like, I figured out, okay, huh. If I stop drinking Friday night and like just really load up, my first class was on Tuesday and then uh, I can get away with it. And that's what I did. So there was a bunch of stuff. And then once I was done with that, uh, I chose not to get a license and I would commute. We have wonderful bus distribution, public transportation in Washington. And I just got used to that. And then I could drink more. It's <laughs> a horrible thing to do, but, you know, I would be able to, I wouldn't get in trouble. I can stay on that drunken hue for a lot longer. And I just got used to that. And then that's when the progression just really took off. And uh, yeah, I wasn't always a morning drinker, but it got to that point. Well, it's progressive, right? I mean, I, it's progressive as any addiction it doesn't start off by saying, hey, I'm just going to have this drink and then I'm going to become an alcoholic and get all this DUIs and then I'm going to have to go into an outpatient program. Every addiction and alcoholism is one of the highest, most addictive substances there is only because it's so easy to attain. And it's so looked upon as normal. It's part of our culture. I mean, it's ingrained into our culture to be able to so long as you take care of business, you work, then you're responsible with your finances, then you're good to go, right? It's totally acceptable. So you mean, Ro, what you're trying to tell me is you drink every day, you got your driver's license taken away, but you held on your job, you were showing up every day, you were not what we think, what my preconceived idea was of an alcoholic was the guy that was asking for quarters at the liquor store. You were the one, I think the preconceived like me, that we don't hold down, that we don't hold down a job. No, we're, then I came to meet all of you and then we'll get into that and how we, alcoholism doesn't discriminate. We are all, some of us, have reached that level to where you're in the homeless shelters, but that's not always the case. In our culture, it's like, as long as you're showing up, you work hard, you play hard, you're getting that paycheck and you're showing up and you're paying your bills and you're having like eating the menudo in the morning with the beer and then you're taking off. Right right there. <laughs> right? I mean, that's part of the culture. Great. I know that I want to hear your how you came to be, because I'm going to, I really want to tie in how it helped all of us, helped me and you, that road there. And we're going to tie that, that in. Yeah. I had a bunch of moments where I knew I had a problem. I was, I was under no illusions. I was, I woke up and I had the worst hangover in the world. And I knew it was withdrawal. And I was like, and I said, oh, it's my husband. I'm a drunk and I don't think I can drink anymore. And this was a full year before I actually got any real touring. I had tremors. I had auditory hallucinations. I couldn't sleep because my heart would pound so fast that I just couldn't sleep. I would wake up and my heart would be pounding. Is this when you tried to stop or in between of the drinks? I was in my active addiction and I 
was going through the normal thing where like, okay, yeah, we drank this week and now I'm going to detox because it's Monday. But then this detox was like fucking hell. And I was like, oh my God. And the first thing I thought was, how did I get here? Because I never wanted to be my mom. And I was like, how could I have let this happen? And then it's the progression, like you said. I thought, I looked back and I was like, well, no, wonder how I got here. It started with the first time I did hair of the dog. It started with the first time I took a drink at noon. The first time I made it okay to drink during the week. The first time I drank before I went to go pick up my son from the bus stop just to stop my hands from shaking. And it just, it becomes normal. Like it becomes normal so quickly. And all the while I have people like joking jokingly saying I'm an alcoholic and these people know me they see me every day and if they're not worried I shouldn't be worried right if they're not saying anything then it's probably fine and I think it's also culturally like we talked about that you were telling me that kind of bringing it back to what Rolita was talking about that you said that it was family that also said well this is the rum and this is the this so bring us back to that because yeah well, I was drinking buddies with my family. I drank with my dad. Like, he tried to get me to drink since I was 14. And his idea was if I knew my limits inside the house, then I'd be safe outside the house. My uncle sat me down and he, like, had every different type of liquor on the dining table. And he was like, so this is your clear liquor. This is your dark liquor. This is what you mix with. These are mixed drinks. These are wine coolers. And his intention was to get me so fucked up that I was turned off from alcohol. But I have such a high tolerance because both my parents have high tolerance that I ended the night with like, I was drunk, but I wasn't out of my mind. I wasn't blackout. I didn't throw up. And from that, like that point where my dad said that it was okay, I was drinking around the family regularly at any occasion. Like my auntie would come up to me and she'd be like, oh, you have to try this Patron. This is the best tequila you'll ever have. Right. And what age were you there? I was 16 or 17. I want to. Yeah. I wasn't legal yet by any means. Right. Not even to smoke cigarettes. But yeah, it normalized it for me really early on. And like even I remember when I went back to Guam at one point, I have a cousin that's the same age as me. Walked into my auntie's house, grabbed a beer out the fridge, and just walked like normal. So what I was going to ask you, Ray, was it kind of like a badge of honor in your family, your culture? Like getting up and having the hair of the dog was almost like, yeah, look at hair that. Hair on your chest, yeah. <laughs> Especially me, I'm like 5'1 now, so I was smaller than probably. I'm a small girl that can handle her liquor. And my dad's like proud. He's like, oh, he, she can out drink some of my soldiers. She can drink them under the table. And so it, I'm like, oh, yeah, not only is it normal, but I'm cool for doing it. Like, yeah, <laughs> right. It is. You know, I just I also remember myself when I went to go see family in Mexico. I was telling Ray the story. So I had my daughter's quinceanera in Mexico. and. I, at that point, I just, I didn't 
there was some sort of thing in me I had mentioned to Ray about this that I was so scared when my dad drank when I was a kid. And because all of a sudden he would take up doing home improvement when he was in a blackout. So he would knock out the windows and then the next day he'd wake up and he'd be like, who did this? He rammed the car into the fence and took it out. And then he blamed the neighbor's kid for doing it. And then he saw his car all fucked up. So I grew up with that, like, fuck, you know, th that's scary for a kid. So when I had my kids, I thought to myself, let me not do the, what my dad did, you know? But it, so I gave myself the age of them being a 16. I was like, because at 16, they can understand. And at 16, when they were 16, I, all, I partook in parties with them. Absolutely. Like we had parties at the house and did all, you know, and I, they were drinking right there because the same logic was they're here. We're all together. They're not going anywhere. And so they can drink with me. That's not a problem. Their friends can come and drink with me. You know, so I was the cool mom, right? And but what I was telling Ray, what was really interesting, so I, went, I had the quinceanera back in Mexico because that's all of, you know, my mom's family. And I decided that I didn't want to get drunk because I wanted to at least have the memory of her quinceanera, my youngest, the quinceanera. So I had to actively tell the bartender Anytime I ask you for a Cuba Libre, which is a rum and Coke, you're just going to pour Coke in there. That's it. I don't want you to add any rum. But don't tell anybody that we're doing this. Because my family was notorious and is notorious still for being like, why are you drinking so slow? Why are you babysitting here? <laughs> yeah, and, it would, you know, and it's, they're notorious for at the table. And still to this day that, you know, aunts and uncles, when I came out and I decided to get sober, the, sig the stigma for myself was I came out after three, three months and I was like, you know, I'm an alcoholic. And I wanted to do this because I just saw a lot of people that in my community and in here in Los Angeles and people that I dealt with friends that were exactly like me and I had asked you know them do you guys think I have a drinking problem I'd asked Arvin my husband do you think I have a drinking problem but if you're in that culture nobody thinks we're all showing up to work we're all showing up and doing the things that we need to do so nobody has a problem and so when I decided to come out and I came out in Facebook the first call that came out was to my mom. And they were like, tell Viviana to stop posting that she's an alcoholic. And my mom's like, you know, but she's sober now. Yeah, but they're going to think she's a drug addict. And my mom's like, but she's sober now. Why should she be embarrassed? And he was like, well, if she's not embarrassing, you're not embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. So tell her to stop it. And neither was it bringing shame to the family. What a couple of things, Viv. One, 
is maybe take a second to let the people listening or potentially listening to this, what a quinceañera is. Obviously, we all know what it is. <laughs> but was it kind of like if you bring in your family business, you bring shame to the family and it's frowned upon oh, in our cultures? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, the, there's this, the word, the quinceañera is the rite of passage of a young or a child, a female child to into womanhood. And yes, it's very much culturally that the party, I, we were also talking with Ray, right? About the, in your culture, in your, the chamorro culture, that it's very known for the, what, first birthday? Yeah, the first birthday is a huge celebration. And you always have to make sure there's enough beer. You gotta make sure that there's like cases and cases, and because you know people are there are gonna drink. Like at a first, at a one year old's birthday party, it's not unheard of at all. It's very common. You were saying that there was someone questioning within the family. Someone, yeah, they were like, "Well, is the baby? Why does the baby need the beer?" They're like, "Oh, it's for the guests, obviously." And then you have, you know, and then in the party mode, you have the kids bringing the uncles their beer because they're just sitting there. And yeah, it starts that early, like where you just, and then like you just, it's just so, it's so normal and nobody discourages it, even though you know that uncle so-and-so is going to end up with his shirt off, dancing alone with his beer. <laughs> no one's going to tell him, don't drink. They're like, yeah, that's going to happen. Even though the cops, I remember the cops would show up and I'm one of the oldest out of the grandkids, out of my generation. So I would be responsible for like, oh, we got to get all these little kids out of here so they don't catch an elbow or something, you know? Because, and that was normal because they're drunk and they're fighting. And then the next day, no one remembers and everyone's still friends. But that's normal. Like, and then you have this where I'm like, oh, well, I don't, as long as I'm not my mom, as long as I'm not them, I'm not that bad. That's the barometer that we all. I'm like, okay, well, my conception of what an alcoholic is this. And I never got that far. But I'm still an alcoholic. I still have a problem. I cannot moderate. Who's moderation? <laughs> Everything in moderation, including moderation. Just kidding. So, yeah. So when I had that really bad, when I was going through withdrawal, I knew I was like, but I couldn't fathom my life without alcohol. I was like, I don't even know anyone sober. I don't know how to do this and so I tried I was like well let me just cut back and I was meticulous about it I wrote down how many drinks I had each day I was like okay one less drink and then one less drink the next day and then I'm gonna do this and I can do this on my own and my husband goes to the field I don't know if I should tell this nobody knows who he is <laughs> he goes to the field and he has such bad withdrawal that he ends up in the hospital shaking and they can't even get an IV in his arm I'm at home going through withdrawal as well and I'm like terrified and I don't want to drink anymore because it feels so bad and I'm like I know it's the alcohol so I don't want to put more inside 
and I'm on one of those online chats where you can talk to somebody and I'm telling them I'm having auditory hallucinations. I'm shaking. My husband isn't here. I'm the only one who can take care of my kid. What's going to happen to my kid? Radio was like, you need to go to the hospital right now. That's very dangerous. So I close my computer and I go get a shot because that's not an option. Right. What's going to happen to my kid? You know, the cops are going to, I'm going to, both me and my husband are going to be in the hospital and then my kid's going to get taken away. Like, I can't let that happen. I don't have that option. I don't have family around me that can help or are supportive. And so that started me on me researching things like how to get sober without AA. Because I was so afraid of losing my son. Because my mom lost custody of all her children. My uncle has restraining orders from his daughters. And I was just terrified of that happening to me. Were you afraid like if you went to AA, they would figure out, oh, look, at she has a problem type of thing. And you would be afraid of the connecting of the dots, so to speak? I was afraid of everything because I'm shy just normally. And I was like, how am I going to walk into this room? I know I'm going to be the only one from Guam there because that's every room I walk into already in the States. And how am I supposed to like connect with anybody? They're, they don't understand. They don't, they're not, I'm going to tell them the story about how my first drink was with my dad and they're just not going to understand. That wasn't the case at all. Right. But that's what I was thinking at the time. And I was thinking at the time too, that I was never going to tell anyone. I was like, I'll be an alcoholic, I'll get sober, and I just won't tell him. Because I don't want them to think that I'm like my mom. I don't want them to think that I'm a bad mom. It's that thing. It's like, what are they going to think? You know, I cared so much. And when I, so I had gotten probably three weeks sober during the summer. And after that incident, and my husband was an outpatient as well. He was going every day, but every night we're drinking. And now my anniversary is in July and his birthday is in July. So three weeks in June and I'm like, well, we, well it's still cutting down if I do it on the occasion, right? Like, of course I'm going to drink on my anniversary. Of course we're going to drink on his birthday. And in my mind, I just can't see a way around it. We have to, right? And I, it, I'm still going to cut back. It's no big deal. I drank for three straight months after that, woke up and was like, well, obviously I can't do occasional drinking there. And so I'm, it's like October and I'm trying, but I'm in that constant relapse. Every single week, the weekend comes around and I'm relapsing. I'm like hold, I'm just holding on and every single Saturday I break and I'm miserable I'm in so much pain I have pages and pages of journal entries of just complete misery disappointment hopelessness and then my grandpa passes away in October and of course I'm like well I had three days sober. I was like, that's the end of that. And drank straight through to December. So it's December. I'm sorry. I'm getting emotional. 
thing. Sorry. It's, it's December, right? And I'm doing the things right where I have to decorate the tree, but I have to drink to steady my hands because I'm so sick. I can't hang ornaments with my kid and my hands are shaking. I can't wrap my kids' presents because my hands are shaking. I can't take pictures of my kids because my hand is not steady. I have to drink just to be functional. It wasn't even fun. I was just like, I'm sick and I need enough because my body is like de- physically dependent on it at this point. And I love Christmas, but I was so fucking miserable. And I was like, I cannot do this again. And so my husband and my son went to my in-laws for Christmas. And I still had, you know, one of the big gallon bottles. It was half full. And I was like, I need to detox. I need to be done. And they were gone and I just had the worst withdrawal of my life. I white knuckled it. I really, I was just holding on for dear life and just like my own sheer will of like, it's this or die. It's either you get sober or you die a drunk and you lose everything the way your mom did. And I wasn't willing to put my son through that. So I was even suicidal I was like they would be better off without me you know the like sort of bad place to be in yeah so then I have a week after Christmas and I'm all alone again I don't know anybody who's sober I don't know how to do this I don't know what I'm doing my husband's still drinking every day and I'm just on google how do you get sober how do you get sober without it okay. and everything's like you can't you need to go inpatient. You need to go to AA. And I'm terrified. I'm like, I can't do those things. I'm on the app store and I type in sober. And I download like three sober apps. And the one that ended up staying on my phone was the I Am Sober app. And Yay. <laughs> was the reason that you couldn't reach out to family was because... What was the preconceived notion like to even reach out to? I knew I was going to have all the stigma that my mom had because my mom is like, I'm trying to like not. No, I understand. I think my mom literally does math. Like it's bad. She, you know, they see her walking on the side of the road. She's the under the bridge drunk that we know. That's the standard, right? Right. Yeah. So I knew I was like, if I say that I have a problem, they're going to think I'm like her. And I don't want that. This is my own story. I don't want to be judged based on my mom because I was already judging myself. Right. Based on my mom. Right. Like, how could I do this to my son? How could I do this to my soul? But as a question, it's the question I guess that I'm also wondering is if you were not like your mom in your mind right and you identified with your family and they never thought that they had a problem right because they're functioning they're going to work they're doing their stuff so you've got the two opposite ends so to reach out because of the prejudgments and the only reason why i ask this is because it 
in my own story, I couldn't, even when I asked people that I hung around with, because I don't have any family around me. I'm an only child. I don't have that barometer around me. But everybody that I was hanging out with was drinking as much or more. But, you know, we were all in the same. That's what happens. So for me to turn around to my girlfriend and say, hey, do you think I have a problem? Which I did. And she was like, well, how much do you drink? And I and I was being nice about this. Two bottles a night. I know that that the person that I was asking, which were most of my friends, were drinking whiskey at night. They kept our office, they kept full of alcohol. There was beer 24-7 there. You know, so how is that we, and I almost say this, how is the person going to identify themselves as a problem when every, everybody that's your circle is doing the same thing or more. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. Exactly. I immediately identified as my mom. I was like, and I felt so much shame for it. I was like, it doesn't matter. I, yeah, I, I knew that I had a problem. Nobody else, I didn't need to ask anybody else because I knew what it looked like. And it looked like, oh, I can't sign my son's permission slip because my hands are shaking. It looked like I accidentally sent him to school with a whole bag of carrots, baby carrots, in his lunch because I did that drunk and I just wasn't paying attention. It's the, oh, I'm throwing up before I go get him at the bus stop. Because I was so hungover. But I'm like, oh, I'm nauseous and on my period, you know? You just make excuses. And so I knew that I had a problem. And, but I was just so ashamed. And I didn't know. And I didn't want to tell anybody. Because of the whole thing with my mom. But also, like, I my whole life, I have had to do things on my own. At this point, I'm... I was estranged from my dad, which is, this is probably like the third time I'm estranged from him. We get into arguments, we don't talk for three years. That's our pattern. And so I can't ask for help because he's mad at me. And even though I know deep down, if I asked him, I'm like, dad, I need to go, I need to go. He would help me. Hey, Ray, um, for some reason, the uh, ego preservation, is it all about protecting an image of how you wanted others to perceive you? Looking back now that you've had some significant time? Well, yeah, I think, yeah, for sure. I think I didn't even realize how much just shame I felt just for being me. Like, I was this girl who was raised by a drug addict who lived in a house where there was no running water. You know, I washed dishes outside with the hose. I took showers from a bucket. We power flushed our toilet, you know? And when I came to the States, I just never talked about it. No one ever talked about it with me. I never talked about it. And I just dove into this life, this suburban life that I had. In my mind, I was like, 
I'm going to be this housewife that bakes and packs their kids lunch and sends them to school. And I did that. I did all of that. All the while not addressing who I was, not honoring my story and just ignoring it. And so here I am. And I'm, it's like literally like full circle moment of this is where you started. And now this is where you're at. And I couldn't face it about myself. I couldn't. It was like I failed my son. It was like I felt all the heartbreak that my mom did to me. And I was like, how could I do that to him? How could I after I know what this feels like? I don't know if that answered it at all. No, of course it does, because you're in your preconceived notion, you want to do the best that you can for your child. So it's like, I always say it's the apology that won't, that some of us will never get from our parents. It's so how can you admit to yourself that as a parent, you failed your child? And sometimes that's why we never get the apology from our own parents for the behaviors that they did with us because it's too ingrained, embarrassing, cultural. You know, my mom, and I talk about this in some of the Zoom meetings, my mom has never drank because even though her family has, but she's on, on medication, she's diabetic. And so it wasn't something that she did, right? But it was something that my father did. But, however, when I started drinking and I just from when I started drinking when there were 16, I took off like I was off to the races and it was binge drinking. That was my jam. Bad day at work. That's how my dad was. Bad day at work. I already knew he was walking through the door with a, you know, 12 pack of, you know, beer and Coors. That's what he was drinking. And I was like, oh, shit, he's having a bad day at work. He didn't even have to say anything. And so my pattern was, I'm not meeting my sales quota. I was a single mother. How am I going to provide for my kids? So put the kids, you know, to somewhat to bed and binge drink. And then I was like, you know, next day, wake up, go to, you know, wake up do it and then it was binge drinking again and then it was but I didn't consider it a problem then I started through my divorce it that just totally blew everything out in the open for me to not only binge drink but then I was drinking and driving I was you know drinking with my kids the kids were already older it was escalating each and every time it was getting more and more vicious and vicious and my mom you know, that I don't fault her. I don't fault her because this is honestly our cultural community is, you know, she looked at me taking her on a 4th of July. I was, I had been drinking. I had taken her to, you know, really nice vacation spot. And it was, she looked at me and she was like, I don't understand what Armin, what your husband sees in you. You're old, you're fat, and you're an alcoholic. That is not what the way to get someone out of alcoholism or any addiction 
is by shaming them. And unfortunately, I think that culturally, you know, it was very ingrained that this is what we do is we're going to shame the person and we're going to call them names and, we're, you know, and you already feel horrible about yourself. So therefore, you're just going to drink more. You're not going to concede that there's a problem. You're just going to drink more. And, I, you know, I could see, supposedly, and I say this supposedly, but I do believe it's true, and it's hard for me to admit that when I drank and I blacked out and I had my girls around, I was a horrible mother. I'm sure, you know, because it, I, like I told Ray, you know, my daughter would say the oldest one, mom, don't drink as much, please. And I would start going off. Like I was calling them every word in the book because I was mad. I wanted to get my drink. And this was when we were out and about in public. And I was like, you're just being uptight. Why can't I have another drink? And then, or the mom, first of all, who are you to tell me what to do? Right. <laughs> Mommy, who are you to tell me what to do? I'm the goddamn parent here, and I'm the responsible one. <laughs> right, right, right. When you pay my bills, then you get to tell me what to do. Nobody gets it. And that's one of the biggest things is when the defensiveness, when someone is telling you something within your family, like my daughter's, I should have taken one A, that as a sign. There's a problem here that they're not wanting me to drink because that was one of my first wake up calls, you know, that I was in shame that I had gotten so because then it wasn't drinking every day. It was binge drinking. It was making an ass out of myself and being blacked out. And then the next morning having to face the shame. But it progressive, just like you said, you know, because Ray and I had talked about our both of our detoxes and it was worse than childbirth. <laughs> Yeah, I noticed like in the IAS and a lot of the communities, like the word alcoholic is uh, perceived that like there's something wrong with us, something inherently wrong with us. So people don't like to have that tag. And in the program, because obviously, well, not obviously, I, I am an AA, proud member of the AA program. And it's been life changing for me. In the book, they talk about the ultimate obsession of the problem drinker is that we can control we can control our drinking and i as you guys as you ladies were talking it reminded me when i was drinking i would like badger my son you need to stop you need as i was getting loaded you're you shouldn't drink too much of that like why are you tilting back that vodka bottle like you're gonna pass out it's like it's such a ridiculous thing that i would try and like control to make sure that I wasn't going to have to deal with any repercussions of this drinking because, you know, I'm older and I just want to chill. I want to get loaded. I want to kick back. But there was nothing inside of me that said, hey, maybe you should stop drinking altogether. Because the idea of stopping the drink was, didn't sound good to me because I, I, I'm in my early 50s. I'm going to say that till I'm 60. I'm in my early 50s. <laughs> Man, no, you're not. But the idea of stopping after since I was drinking since I was like a young 
teenager, 13, 14, the idea of stopping the drink seemed like a death sentence to me. Like I would be killing this version of myself. Oh, yeah. And that, that was a narrative that I had, like, I'm going to control it. You're just spinning out. You need to be more, because I enjoyed getting drunk. I mean, I wasn't doing it forever. And towards the end, that was like the one thing that I had control over. You know, like I could control it. Alcohol has always been with me, so I can control that aspect of my life. And where I had zero control over everything, really, by towards the end, I was just surviving. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's that that's the thing is that just like we've heard in Bray's story and my story and your story, we start bargaining. I'm only going to do it on the weekends. I'm only going to do it on special occasions. Well, every day becomes a special occasion. Everything is a big problem. I refer to that as like crossing lines. You know, I had these hard lines that I wasn't going to cross. Like, I'm not going to drink in the morning. And the, I like the, this thing that the, you know, because the program has so many cliches. They said, anything you say, I, well, at least I don't drink in the morning. They want you to add the word yet. At least I don't drink in the morning yet, or at least I'm not homeless yet, or, you know, I haven't had any kind of irreversible consequences yet. And once I crossed the lines, those lines were no longer there. Absolutely. Divorce, yeah. When I got divorced, I was like, I was bored. I was, nobody was there to judge me. Like, I'm just going to have a drink. Well, that was your relationship. You're yeah. Like, that was my relationship. <laughs> Alcohol becomes your buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I guess if you put it that way, yeah. That was the love of my life. Oh, I definitely say that. Definitely say that. Like I, when I, you know, we'll get into this. But it, so, Raldito, how did you come to AA and how did you come to IAS? What happened? Because you were there before Ray and I. So what happened? Uh, uh, in the program, what they call a Zoom baby. Okay. Uh, when I finally started to like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get sober, and that was 12, 28, 2019, and I'm like, okay, it's time, let's do it. And from my past experiences, from being forced by the court systems to go explore some AA, I mean, I did see people with significant time there. I saw some sobriety there, and all right, I'm gonna go back. And they talk about the gift of desperation, and I had the gift of desperation. So I'm going back, and okay, all right, this is how I know how to do it. So I'm going to go back, and then this time I'm doing it because I'm trying to be a good dad, you know, like to finally show up as dad, and my son's asking me, hey, help me out here. And for some reason, I was really taking it super seriously, like a dad should, right? <laughs> I'll get extra credit for being finally showing up to be a dad. But I had the gift of desperation and we talked about the prejudgment and I'm like, all right, I got to put, I got to leave my opinion at the door. I got to go in there and try to really take a look at this with an open heart, an open mind. And I went in there and then the, one of the things that you hear a lot as an, a newcomer is uh, show up to a meeting every day, show up to a meeting every day. And my addict brain is like, what kind of life is that? Show up to a meeting every day. This is bullshit. 
And like, all right, so I had to block that off. So now I'm going to go to a meeting every day. And if, you know, if I find something better to do, so long as it kept me sober, then I could do that, right? But until then, I was going to commit to going every day. And I was going to make that my routine. So I started going to a meeting every day. And I was in it. I was going for it. And it was like the same way I woke up thinking about a drink. I woke up thinking, oh, I'm sober now. This is my new life. This is, I'm going to manage the day. And I, you know, I put ODAT in the one day at a time on all my signatures because I like the idea of managing the day. Like, it's not overwhelming. It's not, it's not everything at once. I just have to live in today. And if I stay sober today, it's going to be a victory. So all right, I'm, I'm going to take this one day at a time. And so I was going to meetings every day. I was getting some good sobriety. And I want to say it's around two to three months. I can't really remember the time, but everything started to shut down. So I guess when everything started to shut down, I think that might have been in March. I, I can't remember. But um, I, previous to that, you know, when we were, when I was at the meetings, people would say, hey, yeah, what's your clean time? All right, how much time do you have? And I'd see people really cool looking at their phone. Yeah, hey, I got five days, too many hours, blah, blah, blah. I go, wow, what a bunch of dicks. Like, they got the phone. <laughs> How proud that you feel if you have to look at the damn phone to figure out how much proud time you have, right? But then I go, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> really, I had envy. And so, like, I'm going to try that. And then... Were you, some... Were you just marking off on the wall? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just like, I remember the days and I just kept tracking. And so I asked this one person, and who will I do this sober app? And then it was, I am sober. So I downloaded the app. I downloaded the app on the summer of 2019. <laughs> so I would use that just to keep track of how many days. Okay. So the pan pandemic hit, everything's shutting down, and here I'm derailed on not going to a meeting every day. So I'm like, going, oh, this really sucks. How much time do I have? And then I started to just be looking at the phone out of boredom. At the, the clean time, and I saw a community, and I go, what's this community thing all about? So I pressed the community button and mind you, I was feeling a little bit discouraged. I was feeling deflated because now what? Like, what am I supposed to do now? And how many months? Uh, that was, I can't, it was like two or three months. I can't remember, but. The ninth mark is usually that, that, you know, when you have that, I, what I call the big thaw. Yeah. I wobble, that big thaw. The feelings are coming in, right? Because yeah. I, yeah, so then you looked at the community. So I hit the community button, and I was like, hey, what is this? And I started reading, and it really captured my interest. And I was, like, really down, and I said, I'm going to post. I'm going to do a post. And I did a post, and I remember, God, I want to say uh, this lady, named, I want to say Christian, Christy, Christina. It was Christina from Boston. <laughs> she made one comment. <laughs> you know, I had put my mug up on the on the app and I was smiling because I just had put on my braces and I was going to change my life, right? I was going to get braces. I was going to get sober and I was going to start, you know, really 
you know, commit to this. And, uh, and I go back in there and she had left a note, nice smile, congratulations. And it was like uh, the best fuel in the world. It was that tiny little comment that lifted me up. And I was like, wow, that felt really good. And so I started reading. I was like, I can do this. I can get connected with people through the app. And I started doing that instead of, you know, doing something. And I was tethered to that app like nobody's business early on. I was like on it. I was reading. I would follow what everybody was saying. And that's what, that's when I discovered the app. So I'm really interested because this is the part that gets interesting, that you were one of the founders of the Sober Squad. How did that come about? Like, what happened? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. I remember this. <laughs> so in the time, I, I personally feel like we have, our, my timeline is pretty special. There's a lady by the name of Monica, 78, Kali D., Hellraiser, Rebirth. We had a lot of really cool people, you know? And we would check in like a community, a, a virtual community. How's everybody doing? And we would post and we would support each other. And I remember Kali D, which is another one of the co-founders of Sober Squad. Kali D, she was having a hard time and she was going to meet a friend. And she was reaching out. Oh my God, I'm going to see my besties, the one I used to get loaded with. And I'm like, I remember Lilo and me came to the rescue and we were like, hey, you should do this. We had a lot of input of how to, you know, she could navigate through this. But it felt really limited. Like we couldn't have a real time conversation. But she navigated through it okay. And then we touched base and we thought, hey, you know, here's my number. If you want to talk in real time, this is my number. And so we exchanged numbers. And I jokingly put up, well, I didn't jokingly, I put up a post saying, hey, we should start Zooms because I was hearing some buzz about Zooms and getting connected with Zooms. And then I took it down. I go, how ridiculous is that, Raul? <laughs> <laughs> and I, wanted, I still feel like Kali D saw that post you know and then she like recognize it but then she put up like a couple of days later she put it up hey we should start a zoom and i immediately was like yeah because then i jokingly say she's way prettier than me so she'd be a way better front you know to start this <laughs> she'd be a good talking head and boom we were like and then chef 56 which was starting to follow me and Kali D and he was like a real like wow who is this guy it felt like he had so much more time than me you know like one level above me was felt like it was like a hundred thousand miles you know like wow they got you know they're at a different level and Chef was really popular on the app I started to get popular and Kali D was pretty cool and then I also got connected with Jordan JF0920 She's the one that, you know, all four of us decided, hey, this is a good idea. And we spent a good month coordinating and getting in Zooms, getting together with Zooms. We wanted it to be for the app. So when the app is not AA, it's not NA, it's not any kind of a program. We wanted to have it an open forum that was reflective of what the app was like. And it was going to be our gift to the community. And... 
we were taught, we don't want it to be the, you know, the, Hey, I'm an alcoholic or I'm a drug addict. We wanted it to be a safe space for everybody to come and support each other. And then really have a real time ability to connect. And I remember the first meeting that we had, it was at five o'clock Eastern time in New York and 14 of us showed up and it was wild. It was so wild. And Jordan was the one hosting the meetings. And then, you know, the rest is history. It was just, it was, it worked out a million times better than we had ever dreamed of. And then we wanted it to be a community thing. It wasn't going to be and I'm flattered that I'm considered one of the co-founding fathers. But like today, I don't even know what's going on with Sober Squad. I'm just a participant, you know. But it is kind of cool that I am one of the founding fathers. And it's happened just like the ways we intended it to be. The Sober Squad is the people going to it, right? Like now Saddle Tramp is probably, he's Sober Squad. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. Shows up, you know, whoever shows up and is part of the fellowship. And I like being one of the audience. I like being one of the, that's kind of how that all started. And then, you know, it was one meeting. I think at some points we had like 60, 70 people showing up on that oh, one Saturday wow. because I was the only one and everybody wanted to come in there. And then we started to grow. So there was only one meeting? Yeah, oh, one meeting. Saturday would be two o'clock West Coast. Wow. And that was a big, uh, he had a lot of followers from the UK and like, we thought, hey, we should uh, encourage our people from overseas to kind of, let's make it a friendlier time because I think 5 p.m. was close to like 10 p.m. their time. And it's really late. So we figured, hey, you know, was there any time limitations when you were getting loaded? You know? <laughs> you know, like, if you're going to show up, you're going to show up. But we did eventually open up one that was a little friendlier towards our European peeps, I'm going to say. And then the 9 a.m. came about. On a Saturday at 9 a.m. and then it was the 5 o'clock? Yeah, so 9 a.m. West Coast. I always, it's 12 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. So that was like two meetings now. <laughs> oh, a double dip. They would show up to both. Like, that's what I did. Why not? <laughs> Was it surprising, like when you first held the Zoom, like to be able to communicate? Because when we come to the app, you're anonymous. You post whatever you want to post, right? And then you're anonymous. So all of a sudden, now you're throwing the Zoom party and you're seeing everybody in real time. And everybody and knows your story, right? Because you've been writing about it. Yeah, and it, it was like uh, putting a face to the people on the app. And, and I'm losing my train of thought here. Oh, so there was, we had so many people. And even with the two meetings, we still had a lot of people. And one of the things that we kind of backed into was because of, you know, we all wanted to talk. We all wanted to have the, the platform to be able to get whatever we wanted to say out. And like, oh, how are we going to do this? We have a lot of people. And so Jordan was talking about in her work, they had like breakout rooms. So like you have teams and then you go to your teams and then you focus in on that and then you reconvene with a larger group and say, hey, let's do breakout rooms. That way everybody has a chance to share. Because, you know, there's some people who, not like me, you know, I like to listen. Talk. 
<laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, there's some people that would just have a lot to say. And then the people that are more quiet, like, like Ray, would get drowned out, right? And so we wanted to give everybody else a chance to talk. And so we, all right, so let's do breakout rooms. That way everybody has a chance to share. And so we didn't intentionally, hey, we're going to have breakout rooms to make it be like a beautiful thing, right? We kind of backed into it. And now the breakout rooms are the, that's where I love the breakout rooms because you get an intimate setting. You can talk about kind of like we're doing right here right now. Right. You can be more comfortable. And that's how the breakout rooms came about. And then all of a sudden now that was the jam, right? That was where Silver Squad took off. Right, right. And I think it's such a beautiful thing because, I mean, now from my side on the other end of the spectrum, and I'm looking at how much it's mushroomed into what it is that, you know, how did you guys come to the idea of camera on, camera off, it's okay? We, we were like typical alcohol. We were obsessed over it, right? So we're like, we want more people. Let's go get more people. And what about people that are shy? And we actually, Ray was one of the first people that uh, we were talking when we were, you know, have meetings like, hey, so there's this person, Ray, that doesn't want to open the camera. How do you guys feel about it? And there was a lot of back and forth about it because a lot of people you know the intimate setting well who is this person why do they have the camera off what are we how do we know or what are they doing right there was a lot of opening we want to be safe and we want to be accommodating but do we want to compromise our anonymity and now who are these people and so ray was like one oh she was a topic of discussion like oh wow we would like we wanted to have her feel safe but she would at least you know type in there and we knew she wasn't some rando right and so we just all right come to it it's a safe place if you feel comfortable or not comfortable we wanted audience and we wanted to be all encompassing and we wanted to have a safe place for everybody but we had a lot of discussions, and even to this day, we still have, you know, differences of opinion about that. Because, you know, if you're not ready, you're not ready. Right. Because uh, it is pretty intimate. Like, these sessions in the breakout rooms, we're opening our hearts, you know? We're talking about some real stuff. And, uh, you know, who is, who's behind the... Ultimately, we settled on if they put down who they are on the, on the app, and they're just listening. If they have some sort of interaction, even just text, then we felt that was a good compromise. But yeah, it was a big thing. It was a big think tank for a while. And then, uh, yeah. When did it start? When did the Zoom start? April 2020. So it's not even, you know, it. I mean, it, I'm going to say in alcohol days, <laughs> well, the first week is like every day is dog years. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, I mean, it's fairly new if you really think about it, but it's really, you know, it has president, it has, you know, the culture behind it. And it's been there for a while. It's the standard. It's what everybody knows that where they can go because the Silver Squad has always you know, been there 
And how did my other question was, so the reason I say the Theo and the Thea, the Anne and the uncle being there is because, you know, how can I be there? Because what if somebody sees me, right? Because I had the conversation with Ray. So Ray, take it from there. So you download, you have that come to Jesus moment, you know, the CTJ, and you download the app. I was terrified. I was like, I have to be so obscure. And I changed my name. My, for a long time, a lot of people knew me as Uno Mas, but my name before that was Inspired Iridescent because it's so fucking vague that who would ever know that it's me, right? And I was like, I'm going to change my cadence so no one knows it's me and I'm not going to take a picture of my house. And I was just so terrified that people would know who I was. Yeah, I was scared. Like, I've gone my whole life. Not my whole life. That's an exaggeration. I moved to the States when I was 14. The very first state that I lived in was Kentucky. The first classroom I walked into, a boy had cowboy boots on and a cowboy hat on the desk. And I just felt out of place. Culture shock. Yeah, it was huge culture shock. I was one of five people of color in the entire school. And so it was me, this Hawaiian girl. That's the only one that I knew. I didn't know anyone else personally. And I would hear people whispering about me. They'd be like, oh, is she, maybe she's Middle Eastern. They would come straight to my face. They'd be like, are you Red Dot Indian or Feather Indian? Which is not politically correct at all. Because it's those questions that they, they come about, right? I mean... And yeah, and so an AA is terrifying because you have to own it. You know, I'm Ray, I'm an alcoholic. I've said that a bunch of times now, but in the beginning, I was so terrified and I couldn't fathom my life as a sober person. For the first six months, it was very much one day at a time because I could not plan a future. I was like, how am I going to toast my son at his wedding? I had to grieve this image of me being a grandma on my porch with the spiked lemonade and my baked cookies, right? Because I had it all planned. This was my whole life that I had to turn around and completely change. And I couldn't see it. I couldn't, I don't know if it was just that I didn't come to terms with it or if I just didn't know anything different at the time. But yeah, I was just, I was so scared. And then... And then I was like, uno mas, because, well, one, I used to say uno mas a lot, so much that my husband got a tattoo on him. And wow. <laughs> one more, huh? Uno mas. Yeah, because, you know, like, he, I would, it was always like, I was always an insatiable, addictive personality type of person. I was like, and so I was always the one, like, one more shot. Like, let's close this place down. Let's do it, you know? And so I was like, and because I didn't know any other way, I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I was like, take that, turn it around. One more day sober could be one more day. Get me to this bed sober and wake up and do it again. Just get me into the bed sober at, at the end of the day and I'll be fine. And were you posting on the app? I did. Again, but I was trying to be sneaky. I was like, and eventually I just broke down and all the pretense fell away and I was just myself. And I started making connections through there. And everyone was telling me to go to Zoom. 
And I was like, how am I going to introduce myself in Zoom? How, you know, I look like I'm not from here. I'm, you know, it's, I was just, I was mortified. Like, I couldn't, I don't, and I'm shy enough as it is. It's really hard for me to, it was so hard for me to come out of my comfort zone. Like, that's, I just, and I was telling Raul about this before, like, I'm a military brat and a military wife, so things change all the time and I hate it. And so if I can avoid it, I do that. But to get sober, I really had to embrace everything. I had to be open to everything. And so I came in to Zooms probably. Well, I just, so I started reading the books, right, that they would tell me on IAS. They would tell me, get a hobby, change your routine, all of this stuff. I was getting information from AA without actually going to AA. How? From people like Raul who are like telling us about it. <laughs> without any, you know, encouragement. They're just preaching the gospel like this says. I, yeah, I would get, so I would do some of the things that they would say. And then I was like, you know, I know I have an anxiety problem. So I'm going to go to my doctor and I'll get medication and then I'll go on soon. But it's COVID and my appointment get, keeps getting pushed back because my doctor keeps getting COVID. And, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm desperate. I'm desperate. Like Rosie said, I'm, I want to keep this so bad. And so I go in, camera off, terrified, shaking the whole time. And there people are, these people are amazing. These people have like 500 days sober and these are like men and they're like manly men <laughs> and they're vulnerable and I don't even know how to be vulnerable and they're honest and they don't have any shame and I just didn't know what I was doing there. I had no idea if I was even supposed to be there because I still felt so out of place and I would come in and I would think, that was horrible. That was a horrible experience. I didn't contribute. They're going to kick me out any day because all I do is come and listen. And people would reach out. Like, dad life would, he direct messaged me. He was like, I know you're scared, but this is a safe space. And he's like, whenever you're ready. And then A-Rod would always comment, it was good to see you at the meeting. And like, people would reach out and I'd be like, as Right when I had that moment of I'm never going back, someone would reach out to me and I'd be like, well, crap. <laughs> All right. See you next week. And <laughs> so, and then I, and I did all of that with all of my anxiety, with all of my feeling like culturally out of place and all of that. It was a great, I'm so grateful for it because it was like dipping my toe in the water it was a way for me to get the feel of the area to learn the vocabulary without I don't know without like having to like to still and I still kept my anonymity I was still able to feel I still like I was able to come in and even though I wasn't completely like oh I'm gonna have a sober light I was still able to get the information that I needed it was like Raul had said to me he was like you were so clearly ready to change your life. You were just scared. Like, I know wow. what to do. It's wisdom. 
Yeah. I would, uh, I'm so curious because this, I think this is the first time I've had this perspective from your perspective. I'm curious to go back to that moment because you were going to, you're going to made a decision to turn your camera on, right? But what were you thinking and what prompted you to finally say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to turn the video on. I'm going to go for it. Well, it was, you know, breakdowns lead to breakthroughs. So I'm in a room with dad life and other guys, right? It's just a room full of men. And dad life is crying and he's talking about his kids. And I'm on the other side of that with my blank screen. I'm crying and I'm like, what's wrong with me that I can't do that? He, this man is here and he's a guy and they always tell men, be strong and don't show emotion. And look at how brave he was and how vulnerable he was. And I felt like, what's wrong with me that I can't do that? And so after I had my breakdown, after I cried, I was like, I can do that. And then I listened to a podcast. I listened to Benji's podcast about honesty. That was on Silvertown. And I was so inspired to just be honest about who I was. And it was knowing that, like, I saw Raul and I was like, oh, okay. This isn't, like, I saw, like, my uncles. I saw, like, my cousins. I saw, okay, I might be in the right place here. You know, I had gone to AA meetings and I was the only person of color there. And I was like so uncomfortable. I couldn't walk in. I couldn't bring myself to walk in. So, yeah. So then I, I decided I was like, and I was still not on my anxiety medication. So my hands were shaking when I turned on the camera. But at this point, I know these, you know, like I know A-Rod. I know his family. I know what he's been through. And they know me. They know my story too. They know intimate details about my life. And... So as scared as I was, I was like, you just do it. And that's one of the things that I've learned getting sober is being comfortable in that uncomfortable space, getting out of your comfort zone. Usually there's something really great on the other side of the scary. Like putting on my camera, I was able to really connect with people more and make them feel more comfortable. And I felt more comfortable because I felt like I'm finally contributing. I'm finally saying something. People are like, oh, I relate to that. You know? Did it make you feel, because we had talked about this, did, you, did it make you feel comfortable? Like when you first joined the Zoom and it was with the camera off, how many months had you been on the app? I've been on the app since January and I've, came to start coming to Zoom's program. What year? January what? 2021. And started coming to Zoom's when, more or less? I was started probably October. So. Yeah, okay, yeah, because I, and then I was, yes, because I was like, the anniversary of my grandpa's death was coming up and I was so scared that was going to make me relapse. So I was trying to up my recovery game. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go. 
like you're jumping in the pool, right? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, it's just, I don't know how, now that I am on Prozac, it's a lot less scary, but I just physically would be so scared. I would, my stomach would be in, I'd want to, I'd be like gagging because I wanted to throw up. I was just so scared. And it just doesn't make any sense, but like, that's just how it was for Pete. Like, and you were saying that you had mentioned to me before that seeing Raul made you feel comfortable. That <laughs> yeah. Another person of color, basically. Yeah. Even though I totally look white, though. <laughs> <laughs> your name, even if you did, which you don't, your name is Raul. Your app name is Raulito. It's very... You're very ethnic. You're very <laughs> ethnic food aisle. Like, <laughs> I remember. So you're on the app, and I, I think you were more or less about 11 months sober. And so of that same year, Raul, is when you guys started the Sober Squad? It was. No, we, were already, we were already on there. We started in 2020. Year before. But, uh, Ray was like affirmation for us that we were doing the right thing. Here was somebody who was very fragile and we were holding space for her. And when she started to blossom, we were like, yes, we're doing something right. You know, it was like, we have so many success stories that have joined us, you know, in Sober Squad. But for some reason, Ray was like the little engine that could, you know. Right. And she was so fragile and so nervous. And then the community as a whole just kind of came to her. Like she gravitated towards her because she was so fragile. And But now look at Now look at her. Stop <laughs> her. <laughs> I was so, I really was able to grow into myself in this community. I was able to really find my voice and... Fine. And I was encouraged probably for the first time in my life to just be myself. And I was so validated at every turn that, you know, I was like, yeah, I can do a podcast. That's something I never would have done in my life. This is my third one. And I'm, I still don't know what I'm doing here. And then I hosted, you know, I started hosting meetings. I really just found like a comfortability with myself. And after I was comfortable in this community, I was comfortable enough to walk through those doors. And I had connections with Raul and Saddle Tramp and Steve K. And they're all AA, right? Right. And I'm sitting outside, like probably the fifth AA meeting I've driven to, that I'm still scared to walk in the door. And I'm like, I go over the names in my head and I'm like, that's who's in there. Those, my, those are the type of people that's in that building. They're not going to, they're not scary. You know, Raul's not scary. I hear that Raul is scary, but I never had that experience with him. Yeah. And I was like, and that got me through to my first meeting. Now I have a sponsor. I go to two in-person meetings. Oh, I'm working with steps and I just don't think I ever could have gotten here. I'm comfortable with myself. I'm happy and I'm connected to people. I think I probably could have been a dry drunk, but I would not be having as much fun as I am. Right. Like I, 
I feel like I can recover out loud and I feel good about that. Right, right. It's a, it's a proud moment when you come and you're able to walk in, in your own skin and be, this is who I am. That's, you know, for me, that's the word of empowerment. You know, I'm Viv and I'm not AA, not, I don't have anything against AA, but when I became sober, I just couldn't, I had so much stigma around one, I was a woman and two, I was a Mexican woman, you know, Latina. And I'm thinking, and three, I, you know, work in finance. So all those three for me was a big stigma because I'm dealing with people's homes. And if they found out my dirty little secret that I couldn't even handle my scandal and I was, you know, drinking 24 hours a day at the end of it, this is what it is. In all our stories, it's progression. It doesn't, it's not we pick up and then all of a sudden you take off. This is a career and it happens like in that progression, you know, it's like, so for example, I would compare it to someone that says, I started working, you know, at McDonald's and all of a sudden I'm the manager of McDonald's. They didn't plan. They were just, you know, working the drive through, but all of a sudden they became manager. Well, that is alcoholism. You start as you know, working the drive-through because the alcohol is with you in the passenger seat, in the back seat. And then all of a sudden, the alcohol is in the passenger seat next to you. And all of a sudden, the alcohol actually wants to be the driver. <laughs> Jeez. And then you're like, what the fuck? And then the exchange that we give in order to keep it going because now the alcohol is really part of your life. We got to show up with payment. And how do we pay? What's the goal to, to have the alcohol in the car with us? Our friends, our relationships, our loved ones, our jobs, our reputations. You know, I mean, there's a whole list of things that I just think in that I want to bring up. So one of the things that alcohol does it says that it compares it to a metaphor as an automobile an automobile has four tires and it has a steering wheel so the five losses in recovery capital so the losses are hygiene immune system cravings it dominates your life it can get you near death or death experience that's the physical the mental the mind is hijacked. It's in confusion. It's irrational. It sees limited choices. Its core values become out of sync. Legal problems. Emotional losses. It, avo it avoids contact with others. Blurred or lost truth. Lying, cheating, and stealing. Distortion of truth. Justification. Dishonest or dishonesty and justified as well. The social losses. You are only surrounded by people that are support your drug or habit of choice. Isolation. No purpose. 
Your whole sense of community is lost. Your spiritual, which is your steering wheel, the addict is in disconnect from its higher power or God as, it, as it's on it known. Spiritually bankrupt. Moral compass and loss of humanity. It becomes manipulative and predatory. Poor choices. So that's how I felt. All those five things when I came to the realization that I was just, I was lying, cheating, manipulating my way. I knew I had a problem when it was my husband's 40th birthday. And it was an all-inclusive. And it was supposed to be a big deal for him. And it was supposed to be a beautiful getaway. And it ended up being him taking care of a drunk 24-7. And I would look at pictures and I couldn't afterwards and I didn't recognize myself. I didn't remember taking the pictures. I wasn't there. And then when I came back, I was like, I was at my wits end because now I was waking up earlier than he was because the in quarantine, we're still in quarantine, the liquor store never closed. It was open 24 hours. That was the only thing that the grocery store had a time limit. It would close at 8 p.m., but the liquor stores were open 24 hours. And I lived in a building where the liquor store was right downstairs. So I'd wake up super early at this point, and I was shaking, and I would be like, okay, well, this is hair of the dog, because if I could have menudo with my family the next morning and a beer, what's the difference with this? But that habit that... I thought was cool was now no choice. It wasn't a choice. It was planning, cunning. You know what? I have to wake up earlier than he does. I have to go, you know, buy the Patron bottle. I have to, you know, I would sit there. There's was these cabanas around the pool area because we rented in this kind of like a resort area and Armin would be sleeping and I would go into one of the cabanas like at 7 a.m. And I would buy, you know, the alcohol and I was working from home and I was downing, you know, as much tequila, if not the whole bottle, so I could steady myself. And then I'd walk upstairs and I'd feel like, like I can do this. And I'd sit at my desk until he woke up and he would just, you know, he wouldn't know. Sometimes I would make it upstairs with the, you know, would forget that I had the corks in my pocket. And I was like, oh, fuck, he's going to find the cork. Or else there was, he would hide the bottles of vodka and I would find them and I wouldn't say anything and I'd open them and I'd fill them with water after I drank them. And, you know, taking a person he didn't know. And a lot of people say, well, how does your spouse not know? How do the people around you not know? Well. The truth is, even the alcoholic itself doesn't know. I did not consider myself an alcoholic. I was sober curious. I just knew that I was shaking and I knew that I was blacking out every night and I was having fights. And this wasn't 
the right thing to do. I knew that it was taking a toll. I could see the bloat in my face. I could see that it was just taking over. It was no longer me. I was 10% of it. I, it was the steering wheel now. And I was so embarrassed because who was I going to turn to? Everybody was doing it. Everybody was drinking. And the ones like I, you know, I had told you I was joking around before with these people, my peers, about how much, you know, maybe I would show up when it wasn't quarantine. One of our offices happened to be right next door to a bar. So we would go over there midday and basically get tanked and then, you know, Uber home. And one of the girls in the office would say, oh, yeah, my husband thinks I have a problem because I'm taking the vodka bottle in the shower with me. And we'd giggle. Oh, so, <laughs> so she's taking the vodka bottle in the shower. Then me hiding, you know, the alcohol at 7 a.m. in the morning in the cabana. You know, I'm normal. I'm okay. I'm showing up. But it really started to scare me because now I couldn't see now I could see it taking its toll. My hands were shaking 24-7. I honestly thought, oh my God, I have Parkinson's. And it was scaring me. My, sh my hair head was shaking at certain different times. And I couldn't keep track. I had a list for everything. Every client that I had a list for a list on top of a list of the list. And so that was the only way I could keep it together. And so when I went to, after I came back from the all-inclusive and he was horribly mad at me, I had a great idea. I had already been looking like, I can't go to AA because that's admitting to everyone in my family that there's a problem. I am just sober curious right now. I don't think I have a problem. I'm a gray area drinker. Gray area drinker. That's all I am because I can still hold it together by a thread. And so I was looking for that sober coach and there was no sober coach. I interviewed like three or four of them and I needed someone to be able to put me in check, to not lie to me, to basically, I don't want to say stand up to me, but to give it to me straight. So in, in interviewing these women, I saw some of them and the one that caught my eye was the one that started to write a blog and her blog, she was from out of Chicago and she's a redhead firecracker and her stories that she was writing was, I was three months sober, went to my husband's company that they give them, you know, for sales. They gave him a, a trip to Cabo and we walked through the door and he said, please don't drink. They gave us a welcome cocktail and she was writing that she took the welcome cocktail and the whole rest of the trip, she was gone. As I'm writing this, I'm like, this is the person I want. Because if she can get down and dirty and I was crying when I'm writing those stories, and I'm thinking, fuck, she gets it. She gets me that I, if I, I didn't even know moderation. I tried to moderate. I tried to do sober October. I tried dry July. 27 days 
I, it was my max. I tried to work, go work out in the mornings. I was showing them drunk to the workouts. There was just, there was nothing. I bargained with myself because I did not want to let it go. When I detoxed and it took three days, I finally saw that silver coach. And it was the most horrific detox. Nobody could have ever prepared me because I thought a detox was basically heroin. That's what detox for me was. I had no idea that detox, you can die from alcohol detox. And it was astonishing. After the three days of not even being able to walk, I met her and she was like, you know, I'm proud of you. I love you. Encouraging. And she told me, but I can't be your only support. You need to have community. There are several different apps. She didn't really tell me which ones, but in being sober curious, I am sober kept coming up because the medallions of your eight months sober people would post. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And so it was like, all right, let me go. Let me use this. So I downloaded it and it took me seven days and I was just staring at the app and I didn't post my picture and I didn't do anything on it. I just watched. And then at that point I started to post. And as I started to post, what happens on the app is people like Raul, that has a lot more time than I do, comes back to the day zeros and the day seven. And it's, you come back and you're, you've been there. Everybody's been there. Everybody's had that day zero. And when he was like, he made a comment on one of my posts, like, Hey, you know, I think finally posted, I was struggling. I wasn't doing well. I hated my life. It was a wet cat. My first post, cause I was so angry. And I, and Raulito was like, it's cool, man. You're going to be cool. You know, we've got you. It's one day at a time. And I was like, there's a Raulito here. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Because I mean, all I knew in LA, yes, it's diverse. Yes, my, you know, even my husband's not, he's not Hispanic. But somehow culturally, it felt okay that there was a Raulito. There was a tío or a brother or a cousin of Raulito. And that made it better made it more comfortable and then when i started as time progressed I, he would keep on telling me come to zones i'll be there and i was struggling <laughs> and he was like come to zones i'm gonna be there i wouldn't show up and he would say don't be like show up <laughs> but i was like thinking how am i going to be open how can i show my face so God, how am I going to show my face to these people? Having these preconceived judgments about myself, of culturally where I had come from, what are they going to say? El que dirán? What are they going to say? You know, we don't go to therapy. You go to, th I mean, that's how I grew up. My mom never went to therapy. 
right? That was never, you know, presented to go into therapy. That was something white people did. One of my friends that I confided, and I said, I got, I said, a life coach. And I don't even think I said a sober coach. She goes, you got white people problems. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. That same prejudice, right? And when I showed up to the Zoom, it was like, it was Raulito there, but it was big to where you see them on the screen. You see all kinds of people. I think you didn't have your camera on Ray at that point in time, or it would be on and off, on and off, right? Sometimes it would. And so, but it, you know, what was interesting was I was like, these stories that everybody has are just like mine. They're hiding the bottles. Their, their husbands don't know. Their wives, you know, they've, they've gone through what I've gone through. And that's the thing is that our podcast is to bring the attention to where you don't have to suffer by yourself. People of color, just people, humanity in itself. We're all just humans. And we, there, are, there is no discrimination. I decided to recover out loud. And one of my daughter's friends decided to reach out. And she went to AA because I decided to recover out loud. And she's eight months sober now. So, wow. Yeah, and she's, you know, she's a and she's on the app. That's what I put her on first, but she needed in person. And so she did that. And I, you know, one of the things that gets me on the app is I now start seeing a lot more people of different, you know, ethnicities. And I would love to see more come and join and not. What it, there was a word that you used, Raulito, that was very enlightening. You said investigate, right? I don't remember. <laughs> word that you have to, instead of making a prejudgment, you have to. Oh, actually, I had a, we had a special on that because it was from Trying 319. She was really big on the contempt prior to investigation. And that's making a judgment before you actually know what something is all about. So, I mean, what do you guys think? Like when people show up and they, if you just showed up one time, Ray, like if I only showed up one time, I couldn't make that judgment that this isn't for me. And this has been my game changer. This is where I've met family. This is, you know, my IAS family is family. And we come from all walks of life. Yeah, I, I've been to so many different meetings. I've been to Rewired. I've been to Sober Town. I've been to IAS. Now I've been to AA. Just online and in person. And I just really had to just be open. And I'm not a very, I don't think I would describe myself as a very open person before. I was very, I was very in my comfort zone. And I didn't see anything wrong with that. It's why I'm comfortable. You know, it feels right. Why would I do something that doesn't feel good? <laughs> and just by being open, by me, like, content, because, yeah, I hated, 
I really did hate like the first two months without my camera. I just, I did not. I did it so good. Like I, oh, it just, it was always a cause of anxiety for me. I wasn't connecting as much as now, how I can connect to people. I can see them face to face and they can see me and they know me and they feel comfortable with me. Like it took several tries to find who I was meant to be with, to find my tribe, really. Like, and these are people that I never, if we were just in a random room together, I probably never would have talked to, you know, like. Absolutely. Yeah, but because we come in and we come in with open minds and open hearts and we just are honest, all of the pretense, all of the other things fall away, you know? I don't know you as with my Latina sober friend. I know you as Viv, who knows what I'm going through because of her husband, and I connect with you that way, and... You know, I know I started seeing Ro as like, oh, he's the brown one there. But then now I know him as like a father. But really like the... Like, I'm glad you didn't say grandpa. <laughs> Are you a grandpa? <laughs> How am I going to know him as a grandpa? If you know Older me? brother would have been nice. Come on, Ray. <laughs> no, well, that's a huge part of your story is with your son. And that's a huge part of my story is with my son, you know? Like mine too, you know, my daughters, same thing. Yeah. That's how that's the it was that quote that I there's an unspoken language that binds us all together. It's human experience, it's human pain. And that overcomes everything. It overcomes whether you're in female, whether you're male, whatever race you are, we're all in together like that's a common thread right and we all have the same affliction the common thread and and some of the readings because i do a lot of the i'm a chairperson and a treasurer for this local group called the new fix and on the reading it says one fellow addict helping another is without parallel like we understand each other better than I mean, even I think the name of the doc, the professor, doctor from dopamine, I call it L dopamine nation. <laughs> I know they're L dopamine, <laughs> the author from dopamine nation. She said she learned a lot of the stuff from other addicts or even Gabor Mate from Around of the Hungry Ghost. He learned what he had to learn from other addicts and you know, we can understand there's nothing you're going to tell one of us that's going to shock us. Like, oh, you did that? Oh, my God. Like, we're like, yeah, par for the course, right? Like, we understand each other. You're not going to shock us. We understand the fragile nature of our condition. And so that's why we were so vested in your success in Sober Squad, right? Because we knew how fragile you were. We could see it. And that's why we were all like... We're cheering you on because you were a little engine that could, you know? I couldn't even see that I was fragile. I never would have described myself as fragile. I was like, you're going to do this. You're going to goddamn do it. <laughs> like, that's why I needed the self because my head was already like, 
what is wrong with you? You know, be better, do better. And so I really did get what I needed from this community. And I didn't even know what I needed at the time. It was just what I needed. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting to me that. So, for example, like myself, with my daughter right now, you know, the younger daughter, I don't speak with her. And I have so many, a group of young women, such as yourself, right, that I'm like so close to, you know, and they're in my daughter's age group. And they actually, some of them even call me mom, Mama Viv. And I'm like, it allows me the space that while my daughter is still estranged because she's in her own, she's having, that's the thing with the addiction. And because I was an addict and I am still an alcoholic, right? If I take, it's that one drink. It's that first drink. The first drink, before that drink, I am me. After that first drink, I am the addict. I'm a split personality. And I understand that. And I accept that. And that's okay with me. And while I'm seeing my daughter have these struggles within her own life, I can't stop it because nobody could stop me. So when I see all these young women such as yourself, Mary, ashes here, you know, better for my family and I could go on and on you know and I'm able to provide because they're ready they want it so I'm not doing for them I'm shining the light on the road for them and they make the choice you make the choice I make the choice each and every day and that's my way of when my daughter this is what one of the things that we talked about Ray that like Ralito and I would have talked and he goes, you're so strong, Viv. And it's like, I've had even bonding moments with Saddle Tramp because I, I was crying my eyes out in one of these zones, uh, Sober Squad. And I was telling him how my daughter basically had just told me, you know, to get the fuck out of her life. She just didn't want to be told what to do. And I was crying because I felt so vulnerable. And he was like, you know, I went through that with my own daughter. And he understood and he made it a place of peace for me. And that was connection to see who Saddle Tramp is. <laughs> I thought he was a biker. He is the walking contradiction. He is all the things at once. He is the ex-military who is also a flower child at the same time. <laughs> right? But it's like with him and Rolito to have that bond and be able to talk about the same thing. My affliction is your affliction. I've been there, so I'm going to be there for you. I'm not going to look upon, down upon you and say, you don't have a relationship with your child? And that's the thing that makes us really cool because, you know, I, when we're honest and we're open and we're not trying to preserve our image and just throw it out there, sometimes it's going to be ugly. And the really cool thing about, like, the surprising cool things when, like, one fellow addict helping another, I'm, you know, sharing my struggle with Viv 
and then like comes back at me and shows and like she's already been through that and like wow and that's the feeling of like okay i'm not alone i'm not the first one to have done this you know and even my sister she's gone through and like i didn't even notice because i was so stuck in self to sometimes like you know i don't realize that you know by opening up by sharing and allowing myself that space to have other people say hey i've been through that this is what it looks like and that was like that was really powerful for me then when you shared that about your daughter because it made me, you know, a lot of times for me, there's like a boomerang effect. <laughs> I see it go through and then afterwards, you know, however many days or months go by, it comes around and it hits me around the head. Pow. Right. And I'm like, oh, ah, I know. And right now dealing with my son and him going back out after I was so proud of having the same clean date, like I have to, even now it's more critical that I, stay the course as i always say stay the course because good things are on the way and just trust the process just live in faith rather than fear but well not only that because i do believe in that i you know to walk in fear is to i heard it another way and it really stuck with me to walk in fear is and be in fear is like prayers to the devil fear is a negative connotation Fear is a negative expectation. So if I can expect the worst, I can expect the best. So whenever my daughter decides to come back, whenever my daughter decides to be in my life, I'm going to be sober. I'm going to be strong. She's going to have these podcasts. These are legacies, life-changing, you know? So that's what this is all about. And through this is one of the biggest things. Ray is my daughter. You are my brother. I see my family in each and every one, and it doesn't matter anymore. Now we're all colorblind, you know? Now we're just people. And that's the beautiful thing. When we can just see people, the reason we're doing this podcast is because we would like to break down the barriers of the walls that could come into these zones to come into sobriety. So even if you're sober curious, I don't know if I have a problem. I'm confused by this. All right, be confused with us. Figure it out for yourself. You don't know what it looks like on this side. I don't, you know? And there's so many more of us that are in that confusion because of the way either Culturally, you know, the family environment. And it's a word that, that is really true, cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance can come into play that I could easily have been Muslim had I been born somewhere else. I could easily have been, you know, Buddhist had I been born someone somewhere else. So the cognitive dissonance that comes in here is that there is no color. There is no borders. There is no boundaries. So wherever you're at on the journey, come in. Join the zones. Up your game. We're just people. And we were also talking about this in, in Raulito, you know. Not one, one size fits all. You got to go to multiple ones. 
That's the beauty of the fellowship, really, right there. The beauty of the fellowship is that 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 common bond that unites us all. And like, I don't have like Shaft as a professor. <laughs> you know, he's he lives way far away, but we have this common bond that we're both going to help somebody out. Our common bond is that we both have the affliction and we're both willing to try and uh, be of service to help the fellow alcoholic who still suffers. And that's the beauty of the fellowship, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just wanted to throw out a little bit of stats out there for anybody that's listening and alcohol involved related that basically are involved. So these are the stats with alcohol related incidents. For motor vehicle incidents, it's 35%. For domestic violence, it's 55%. For assault, it's 80%. This is just alcohol. So I think that one of the questions that I really want to ask, I'm going to put Ray on the spot. <laughs> Ray, if you were to be able to talk to the to someone exactly like you that isn't even on the app or even is on the app and feels shy and feels exactly where you were in that moment, what would you give them as advice? What would be your advice? Just to be open, just to try. You know, nothing is forever, nothing is final. You can go in and you can decide, well, this is not for me. This is not the way I'm going to get sober. It is a very personal experience. So there's a million different ways to go about it. You know, just try it on. Try what works for you, what you're comfortable with, what you're not comfortable with. I mean, I've done so many things. I've taken up so many different hobbies you know that people said would help and now like fold origami stars which is really weird you know but that and that's not for everybody but that helps me kind of that's what's meditative for me it gives me something repetitive to do that's easier to focus on but i didn't get there right away i had right. to do all the i had to fail a bunch of times i had to have that whole year of trying to be an occasional drinker, of trying to moderate before I could get any real time. And I never thought that I would just keep trying to stay open. Shook to zone. Get connected. It makes it so much easier. It was brutal. I was alone for like 10 months doing it by myself. And I was miserable. I was so miserable. I think, honestly, Brolito could have come through the phone. He would have scrapped me, right? <laughs> you know, the, the whole concept, uh, I think, was the connection is the opposite of addiction. There was a study on a rat that he, the rat in a controlled environment had two options, to have the water with no cocaine and the cocaine-filled water bottle. And the rat by itself would always choose the cocaine water until it died of heart failure. 
And given in, a, in an environment where a rat had two options and had community, the rat would not always pick the cocaine water. It would select the water because it had a, a sense of community, which is where the whole concept of connection is the opposite of addiction. And we started to, that was our slogan for a while when we were trying to recruit. And now, <laughs> now there's, it just kind of happens by itself, right? We don't even have to advertise it anymore. As like the seeing the new people showing up is what kind of injects life into the Zooms, you know? Like, and then sometimes when I hear people like come in, I only have two days, I only have three days. Like, it is so hard to get one day. And like, as soon as you get that one day, then you're part of it. And this one guy that was 40 years of clean time, he always says, I got today. And I get, okay, but you have like 40 years. And he would not want to say he had how much time he had because he didn't want to make the newcomer feel like they were less than because they were already feeling that way. And he doesn't want to like, he didn't want to boast about it because he didn't want him to feel the disconnection. Because all we have is today. And really, he goes like, whoever got up the earliest has got the most clean time. Because, <laughs> you know, like, uh, Ray's got more clean time than us. She got up earlier. <laughs> and she's on the eat, you know, or central time, whatever she is. But uh, it's all, no matter how many days we have, the most important sober day is today. Right? Because it can all just go away. But, yeah, the sense of community was a big thing for us for a while. Like, that's what we were pushing. And now, it's just completely, the landscape has completely changed. Oh, yeah. I like recovery circle is how I refer to it. It's like a circle of light. Like, Raul started the meetings and I came in and I remember looking at him and he was so comfortable. He just showed up and he would show up if he was walking, if he's driving home from work, if he's eating. <laughs> he's eating now. He's comfortable with who he is. So like, I remember I saw, and I, that was so, in my mind, that was so unattainable. I would never be there. I would never be comfortable. Like he'll be on the street talking about his sobriety. And I'd be like, he's not even ashamed. Like, that's a stranger there that just walked by him and he's like, yeah, this. And I'm like, wow, now I, and I admire him and I respect him. And then to have that connection of we're the same gives me that I can do it too. It, get, it makes me see my future. Like I can be that because we started at the same place. We are the same. And recently, just last Monday, I meet my sponsor in the park because I have my son with me all the time. A year ago, I never would have done that. I would have made an excuse. Oh, I broke my leg. I can't make it, you know, or my kids. Like, there's just no fucking way. I never, a public place to sit and talk about AA, to have the big book in between us and to be talking openly with other parents and kids. And I walked in there and I had, I wasn't like, oh, they're judging me. Or, oh, they're going to know. I was like, I was just there. I was in the moment. I was like, this is what I'm doing. This is the best that I can do today. Absolutely. I feel good about that. Yeah. The same guy I was telling you about, 
He said, we're as healthy as our secrets. And I wasn't going to keep it a secret anymore. That's the truth. That's the, that's, you know, I get down and dirty in those Zooms and <laughs> they're my soul because I know that I was there, you know, too. And I was like, oh, in so much shame. And then as people like you opened up, it allowed me to open up. And it was almost like, all right, no, nobody's shaming anybody here. So we're all cool. And that's the other thing, too, that you're absolutely right, Raul, in the sense of when these people with day zeros show up or day one, day two, day three, whatever the date they are, and then they see the big numbers on the 18, you know, 18 months or 19 months or whatever that is, I think our sense of community has been now, there's an evolution to everything. It's a more inclusive thing because before, honestly, on the app, before I came to Zooms, I was fast forwarding to a year to see what it would look like. Like, really, is this going to be good? <laughs> I just, and then I'd go the two years forward and I'm like, they happy. And we were just, you know, pristine and happy and everything. And I was like, it would give me hope. So on these zooms like that, the sober time, absolutely. But it's also the other, do we want to give hope that, look, it wouldn't be as good. I wouldn't be here at this many months, which means nothing, like, like you said. But I wouldn't be here if it wasn't that good. It's that good. And it's that good for all of us. And I want what I have. I want you to have it too. So one of the things that I say all the time, like <clears throat> prior to me starting this sobriety, I thought it was a death sentence. This is like, I'm going to be killing myself, which really it was a killing an old version of myself. And now I have completely flipped the switch because now the idea of going back, even when I go through a bunch of, you know, I, I chronicle my recovery as a testament to my higher power, like trying to help somebody out. And I'm not going to be bullshitting or trying to people please or give, you know, I want to be dynamic and I'm going to post something I think you want to hear. No, I'm going to tell it like it is. This is what's happening. And uh, why did I go off on a tangent? Now I don't even know how to close the loop. <laughs> no. uh, it's, just, it's just, oh, and now the idea, having the drink, having, I know what that would mean. That would be killing this version of myself. Whether or not I can come back and get this kind of recovery, I have no idea. But even if I did go back out and then got some recovery, that would be a different version of me at that particular juncture. And I know I can get loaded again. I know I, I can get loaded right now. I just don't know if I can ever come back. And, and I don't want to do that. I'm having too much fun, like you said. And like, this is a blast. I had no idea that I needed recovery until I, I have it. And now I have it. And it's like gold. It's like precious. It's like the best thing I've ever done for myself. And now it feels genuine. I feel, you know, there's a lot of people who say the real me or becoming me. I like even becoming me where we're good friends. She's a firecracker. She's a trip. I love her attitude. You know, there's, 
this is who I am and I'm just getting comfortable knowing who I am and not people please. And it takes a lot of work to get there. Yeah. And like uh, some people say, we're a work in progress. I'm going to be, I hope to be a work in progress until my dying days. And I feel like I'm just getting started. This is just me getting started. And I'm pretty close to a thousand days. Yeah. <laughs> thousand days. Oh my God. That sounds crazy. But yeah. Thanks for letting me share. No. <laughs> oh, of course. There's this thing that they say in AA, the grateful alcoholic. And I went through a point where Viv was talking about, you know, you lose your spirituality. And I couldn't see a purpose to anything in my life. I couldn't see. I just couldn't make sense of all of the pain and I didn't, I didn't have a purpose. I could not find my purpose. And then I got sober and I wouldn't go back. If I could rewrite my story and go back and never have a drink, never become a drunk, never become a recovering alcoholic, I wouldn't do that. I... My life is so full. I am connected to these amazing, inspiring people, like all over the world, California, Seattle, UK, Australia. Tijuana. They <laughs> <laughs> <I> live there. <laughs> <laughs> the scene of the crime. <laughs> oh my God. You know, it's it's really important. I think the other thing that I wanted to talk about is, you know, people need to go to the different zooms, and the reason why is because we're all different. We're all different. Like, you know, Ray's. Well, she used to be a little quieter. <laughs> because I know you guys. If this was a different setting, I'd be quiet. I've talked to you guys a bunch of times. It's not the same. <laughs> I'm just teasing. It's, you know, you're going to get like me right out the gate, you know, because of my background or whatever it is. And I'm the talker. Well, what was really big, and I want to stress this, is that I had no friends when I drank. Like, I had the work friends, but they were like the drinking friends. You get sober. You got to, you know, all those friends kind of, you have to back away, you know, you yourself. And then not only that, but if they back away is another thing, but you yourself have to back away. So I just, you know, because I really wanted to get this sobriety, I was paying a sober coach so I could lay all my problems at her doorstep and bear my soul to her. And I was like, I ain't going to be spending this money. You know, so I can, I had skin in the game. So then, you know, our evolution of, you know, sober coach, because she became my life coach and now she's my business coach, which is the evolution of me. But this is the thing is that when I started showing up to Zooms, it couldn't shut me up because I didn't have friends. So now I had someone to actually go. So I was like working 24 seven because I had muted so much of everything and it was anything that I had put out could put out there of you know the struggle in my marriage the struggle with my kids the addictions happening with my husband the only place as a platform was IAS to write it down so when I come to zooms now it's a game changer now I can talk about this 
So people probably, you know, could, you know, the, my tribe was my tribe. Whoever found me, whoever I found, I found them. So that's why I was like, it, showing up to different ones is where you're going to pick those, that tribe up. That word hates organic. It'll happen organically. <laughs> They'll organic. come to you. <laughs> you know, I, it, the term like the grateful alcoholic for me, that was, that's like a whole world for me because that was the only way I was able to find self-forgiveness because I was beating myself up for such a long time. And I was tethered to my addiction. I was like, I'm worthless. I don't deserve to be happy. I'm a dick. Uh, I'm, I hurt my family. And it was just like this constant barrage of belittling myself without hope. In the program, I learned to incorporate those experiences. And Ray, you're talking about purpose. It's like, all right. In Saddle Tramp, I was talking about page 417. Acceptance is the answer to all of our problems today. <laughs> like, whatever. Why <laughs> I was sending me page 417, you asshole. <laughs> you could hear it. I mean, like I, I was denying acceptance. And the, the only way was to go through the steps for me and start discarding, like going through an inventory. Like, all right, this is not moving. We're getting rid of it. We're, we're cleaning up the shells and you're carrying these kind of stuff in your heart that you should have no business carrying anymore. You know, we don't shut the door on it, but we put them in this proper perspective. And when I was able to incorporate and be grateful for those experiences, because that's who I am. Like I envision myself being put on the oven and my higher power decided to take me out right at the right when I was supposed to come out. And this is me. And now I'm not running away from it. And one of the mental images that I paint, I'm not running anymore. I'm not running. I'm not running away from who I am. I'm not running away from anything. I'm not going to hold my head down because I'm embarrassed to who I am. And for years, I, that was a shame. I was a black sheep. I was the one that spun out and got consumed by alcoholism. And, you know, this one guy who's really important in my recovery i hardly ever talk about him his name is sam and he says my higher power turned my ugly experiences and has shaped them into something beautiful when i'm willing when i'm being a purpose he takes my ugly experiences and he transforms them into something dynamic and beautiful and he says i am uniquely qualified to help certain individuals with my experiences and I just almost, and, and even puts a knot in my throat today because those ugly experiences, even the good ones, it shapes us into who we are, right? Like it, that's who we are. And so instead of running away from them, I'm running into them. Like this is who I am. And just water thanks is another one in our timeline, which I love him to death. He's been man of few words, but one of the, my favorite things he said was, Raul, this is a life lesson, not a life sentence. Yes. In the wisdom, we can turn it into wisdom or we can let it define us like Aviv just said about the uh, fear or faith. You know, the, I think it takes more energy to live in fear than it does to live in faith or to be hopeful. And so I started to just 
take all the food, all the ingredients that people were giving me, and I started feeding my soul again. And I said, I want to get my whole life back, not just a little bit of it, my soul, my pride, my sense of self-worth. And man, my trajectory has completely changed. And, you know, in such a short period of time, my trajectory has gone from pointing straight down to pointing straight up and the possibility of, possibilities are endless. And uh, I'm, I am the grateful alcoholic. Right. And, and I love being, I love, I'm learning to love myself today. And it's still a process. I'm in the middle of it. Yay. <laughs> Yay. You know, it, there's this, also to piggyback on that, there's something that Julie has one interpretation, Dry Mountain Mama, that she says, a life so full. You know, there's her motto. I can't remember how exactly how it goes, but it says, a life so full. You don't want to run away from it. You don't want to run away from it. And you know, on that same token, I'm like, you create a life so full that you never have to mute again. And that's exactly what we're doing is finding purpose, power in our purpose. And the way that we do that is with the community and coming into each Zoom and bearing our space. Finding our voice. Yeah. Finding our inner voice. Yeah. Is there any for anything else that you both would love to add to this podcast for anybody that's out there listening, either if they've joined the app or they have not joined the app, what would you say to them to encourage them? Who goes first? Ray, me or you? Huh? <laughs> It'll happen organically since you already started. You can go. <laughs> oh, not organically. One of the things that I would say to somebody that's new, and there, there's a difference between being in the audience and being in the game. And for a long time, I was in the audience and I started to get in the game. And Viv, you kind of been talking about it indirectly. It's like when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And if you're not ready, you're not ready. Like, But there is a difference between being in the audience and being in the game. And the way I started to get into the game was becoming a service, trying to be a service, even if it's just making the coffee, bringing cookies. Just getting involved and being part of instead of, you know, sitting on the sidelines thinking that somebody was just going to make it easy for me and I'm just going to, oh, thank you. That's what I was missing. Now I just flipped the switch and I don't require any work to get better. No, you got to be willing to put in the work. And I, and if, you know, you don't put it, you, what is it? If you've always done, if you do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And I wanted to change the narrative. And the only way we can change the narrative is if we start doing something different than we have always done. And one of the things that I love on this person's analogy of once become, once we become engulfed by the affliction, it's a trap that can't be released without the help of others. We can't release this trap alone. We need somebody to help spring this trap loose. Or, you know, so we can get out from underneath it instead of being underneath it. And when we're underneath it, we're struggling. But, you know, if we're managing it and with other, with the help of other people, we can at least control it. I was going to say in the reading, it says like, 
We can never be clean of it, but we can arrest. We can arrest it. And I like my life a lot better when I have, you know, at least some sort of a semblance of control over my addiction instead of being underneath it or in the throes of it. So if you're new, you want to explore it, you got to get involved. Go to a meeting as many times as you used to use. Like if you used every day, you might want to go to a meeting every day. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, and, you know, feeling disconnected is not because a group is making you feel disconnected. It's because of what the work that you need to do inside to feel the connection. And it takes time. So keep coming back and don't give up. That's what I say. How about you, Ray? Any words of wisdom for anyone out there that either hasn't joined the app is maybe just sober curious, wants to, is embarrassed, and doesn't know how to go about it, what would you tell them for the bravery to get brave? (laughs) Just that as like an introverted person, you know, there's nothing that I would change about my life. But the first day, first two days, first two weeks, First two months, you know, the first two years are brutal. And it can be so much easier with that connection. Like, like I was going through something recently. This week was really difficult for me. And I don't, I, it's taxing to talk about it. But I texted you, Viv, and I told you what was going on. And I was able to get in my bed at the end of the night and not feel desperate and not feel alone. And know that there was someone out there that cared, that understood, that's rooting for me. Right. And if I'm up in the middle of the night, I know I have options. I know if I get desperate that I can talk to somebody. Doing it alone is just so, so hard. And it's hard enough. Give yourself a break. Make it as easy as you can for yourself. Yeah. I agree. I think that sometimes I see... How even... about you, Viv? <laughs> what would you say to somebody? Else? Well, I, you know, my opinion is all over the place in different aspects. To the people that don't know where to go, I would say download the app anonymously and just look around, look at community. That's your first step. Come into the Zooms, camera on or off, and just listen in. You can spectate. It's okay. Nobody's going to throw you out. You know, everybody's going to welcome you to listen in. For the people that have some time under their belt and they feel that it's stale. Why am I doing this? I always would want to tell that person. It's stale because... You're not engaging. You're not, in, you're not in the community. You have not. It's one thing to just type out something that you feel, and that just is not enough connection. So the connection would be jump on the Zooms. I have seen so many miracles within my own life from going from being afraid to post even my picture to jumping on a Zoom to hosting a Zoom, 
to teaching a class, to hosting a podcast, to from being, you know, on a podcast. So the options and evolution is endless. You just have to be open. First by the lines coach, you missed up. Are you saying that uh, you're thriving in sobriety? Where have <laughs> I heard that before? <laughs> I think it's so fitting, right? Sober, I thrive. I, you know, that's exactly what it is. It's my motto when I'm, I'm going to plug it in, but this is truly my motto when I have people come to me and they're looking for an edge to help them with sobriety. I tell them, you know, my goal is that you won't have to use me. My goal is that you'll have your own sober legs to walk on. I'm, you know, I'm not there to lead you. I'm there to shine the path for you. And that's all we're doing. We're shining the path for each other. And yeah. So my life has been like, all I wanted to do And I was telling Ray this, all I wanted to do is just get sober. That's all I wanted to do. How do you stay sober, right? That's the tricky part. What ended up happening is that I reinvented myself. And I reinvented myself, how? By getting included in community. I didn't know what I was going to be or who I wanted to be. I just wanted to be sober. But what I found was my tribe and I found a place that I could call home and I could find other people where that were exactly like me. And through that, it made me reinvent myself and know that this is my passion. This is what I was born to do. This is my home is to help people and be of service to others. So... That, those are my words. Casa. Yeah, casa. All right, ladies and gentlemen, are we ready to close? Any final words? Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much. No, thank you to Ray for coming up with this. Oh my God, it was my fault that this happened. Why do I do that to myself? <laughs> this was great. Yes, it was great. And you know what? And also, I'm going to tell right here also, Drifter was, he wanted me to personally thank both of you for being so courageous and for being so just willing to share the gospel of sobriety. Yeah, he was just like nervous, but you made it, you and Ray made it so much easier to just kind of kick back and enjoy the ride. It was great. It's exactly what it is, brother. (laughs) all right thank you so much for coming on and we'll see you on the flip side (laughs) you guys have a great saturday you too bye